little bit more in another sutta, another discourse by the Buddha. And uh, this particular sutta is called the Sakka Panya Sutta, the questions of Sakka. The Sakka is the Lord of the Gods, yeah? And uh, so this is kind of the Lord of the Gods coming down to the Buddha and asking questions. Uh, and this is how the gods are seen in Buddhism. It's very different from other religions. In Buddhism, the gods come to the Buddha. In other religions, we go to the gods. That's kind of a, almost the reverse, which is kind of fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what, what is this conversation between God and the Buddha, if you like? Yeah, yeah? And um, so I'll just read a little bit out to you. Not, this is a very long sutta. It's a very nice sutta. And... Uh, uh, if you want to have a look at it, you can. It's found in the Long Discourses of the Buddha, number 21. And it is a, goes on for a long time. This is only a very tiny extract uh, of a very long sutta. So this is how it goes. Uh, having been granted an opportunity by the Buddha, Saka asked the first question. Uh, Dear sir, what fetters bind the gods, the humans, the demons, the dragons, and the fairies? Uh, and any of the other diverse creatures, so that though they wish to be free from enmity, violence, hostility, and hate, they still have enmity, violence, hostility, and hate. This is kind of one of those, uh, I don't know, very interesting questions, right? Why is it that we live in the world where there are wars, where there's always conflict, where there's always arguments, where even family members can't really live together in peace. Why is that when everyone wants to live in peace? What is the, how come there is such a discrepancy between what we want to do and how we actually live? It's a very, I don't know, it's a kind of a good question. I don't usually hear people asking this kind of question. They should be asking these questions, but they don't, right? This is the problem. We always ask the wrong questions in this world. We ask the questions like, where can I make the most money? But that's kind of irrelevant, yeah? That's the wrong question. This is the right kind of question to ask. Why is it that we cannot live in peace and harmony with each other when we actually want to live in peace and harmony? And if we can analyze this question properly, we can get some very interesting answers and very useful answers. So what is the answer to this? And um, uh, the Buddha replies. He says, Lord of the gods, the fetter of jealousy and stinginess uh, bind the gods, humans, demons, dragons, and fairies, and any other diverse creatures, uh, so that even though they wish to be free of enmity, violence, hostility, and hate, they still have these things. Uh, yeah, the fetters of jealousy and stinginess, because we hold on to things, uh, because we attach to things. Yeah, stinginess is about attaching to things. Uh, jealousy is about attaching to things in the world, uh, because we hold on to things, we attach to things in the world, uh, that ultimately leads to violence and all of these kind of things. Uh. But what I really want to discuss here is actually what is the root issue? What is the root problem? I'm going to talk about this very fast because the time is so short. Uh. So the cause then of jealousy and stinginess, uh, uh, says uh, uh, the Buddha, is like and dislike, yeah. Yeah, because we have like and dislike in the world because there are things that we prefer and things that we kind of are averse to that we don't like, we reject. From that arises the fact that we attach to certain things and we reject other things. Yeah, it kind of makes sense. What does 
like and dislike come from? It comes from desire. Yeah, we, because we desire things, we divide the world into the liked and the disliked. Then we attach to things, we have jealousy and, and stinginess, and ultimately that then leads to violence down the track. Yeah. What is the source of desire? He says thought, because we think about things. What is the source of thought? I'm, I'm not going to go into this in great detail. We, we could, and it's actually quite interesting. But uh, what is the source of thought? And uh, this is the answer. The source of thoughts are the concepts of identity that emerge from the proliferation of perceptions. These are the source of thoughts. So what, is this, what does this mean? Concepts of identity that emerge from the proliferation of perceptions. <laughs> it's a bit of a mouthful. But uh, the idea behind this is that uh, everything in the world, all problems in the world, all violence, uh, stems from the idea or the problem of identity. Uh, the idea, the sense of ego, having an ego, having a sense of self, identifying with something, that is the root problem uh, and that's kind of fascinating, right? Because we are, most people in the world, they are proud of who they are. This is me. This is myself. This is kind of my world. I have built this, built up my own life. I'm proud of what I have achieved. And the Buddha says, well, that actually is the source of the problem, this kind of self that we're trying to create for, our, for in, in our lives. It is very contrary to how the world tends to look at these things. And because... This idea of identity, of having a sense of self, and is kind of inherent to human existence, it shows that actually that as long as we have that sense of identity, there is no solution to the problem of violence, there is no solution to the problem of a conflict and all of these things in the world. Yeah, because it's rooted in something that is just everywhere in human society here. You cannot really avoid these things unless you practice a spiritual path all the way to awakening itself. This is how profound it is. And so what this means then is that really there is no escape in the world from these things because the very root of the problems in the world are such that you cannot really be eliminated from our society. There are, we have a society precisely because of the existence of these roots. So it is inherent uh, to how our world is structured, uh, how our world functions, uh, and to our very lives. Uh, and because of that, there isn't really any solution. Uh, yeah, this is what he's saying. Well, there isn't a solution in the world. Uh, the solution must be found somewhere else. Uh, and of course, the solution then is precisely to overcome this identity. Yeah, that is really the only solution. Uh, and once the sense of identity, once the sense of I am, the sense of kind of creating our own little world uh, and having, a, you know, and uh, uh, identifying with certain things, when that is overcome, then you find the solution to this, uh, to this problem. Uh, so the solution to all the social problems that we have are really find, found individually. Uh, they're not found in society. Uh, in society, there is no solution. It is only on an individual path that these solutions actually exist. And that's kind of extraordinarily interesting. Yeah, yeah. It means that really, what we have to do if we want to solve these things, we have to come back to the spiritual practice. We have to come back to the noble eightfold path. This is where the solution is found. 
It doesn't mean that uh, the world is kind of bound to always be bad and evil. There will be times when the world is better. There will be times when the world is worse. Uh, yeah, it kind of it fluctuates a little bit. Uh, but the point is that there is no end goal in that world. Uh, there's just more of the same down the track. It gets better, and then it gets worse again, and it gets better for a while. And it's just kind of going around and around and around, not really actually having any purpose. Uh, there is this nice expression in the suttas about, uh, you know, how we kind of, we roam around in the samsaric existence. Uh, samsara is this idea of being, of birth and death, yeah, how you kind of go around and around and around, coming back to the same thing, yeah. And the Pali word is samsarati and sangdavati, and these words mean something like just roaming, yeah. And of course, the English word roam means like without purpose, yeah, without goal, without having any kind of direction, yeah. Not heading anywhere. We're just kind of going here, then there, left and right, forward and backwards. And we find ourselves pretty much back where we were again, back to square one. What are these games called where you kind of go up and you can fall down, the snakes and ladders or whatever? Yeah? Shoots and ladders. Okay, that's maybe the American version. All right. <laughs> so, um, and, uh, so this is, uh, so we, are, we tend to roam around, uh, and this shows you why. And the thing that we roam around, uh, the kind of the stake that kind of holds us tight to this world, uh, is this sense of identity, uh, the sense of I am, uh, the sense of I am whatever it is that you want to fill, uh, uh, fill that thing with, uh, the I am with. Uh, that is the real problem. Uh. So this is profound, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah? It's very, very deep and very deep-seated. Uh. And so then the solution is really the spiritual path. Uh, that is kind of what this is all about. Uh, and uh, this is where we kind of, uh, uh, why we are here. Yeah? This is why we want to practice a bit of meditation. Uh, this is why we want to follow these instructions to the Buddha, because that is where the solution is to the war in Ukraine, uh, to the climate crisis, uh, to the refugees. Uh, yeah? There may be worldly solutions as well, which take you some of the way, but the real solution to these things uh, is found on the spiritual path. Uh, it's kind of counterintuitive. Yeah? You sit down in meditation, you close your eyes, you follow your breath, and you find a solution to the war in Ukraine. What are you talking about? Uh, <laughs> are you serious? Yes, actually, we are serious about that. Uh, that is where the final solution is found. Uh, and uh, so... How should we go, go about practicing the spiritual life? If the spiritual life is so important uh, that that is where we find the solutions to all the problems in the world, uh, remember the world. What is the world anyway? The world really is uh, each of us. We are our own world, right? Uh, your world is your life and the way you experience the world around you. So in one sense, it, it makes sense that the solution should be within us uh, and not somewhere outside uh, because the world really is the world of experience of individuals. So that is the world where we have to do something here. So we come back to the spiritual path. And I'm going to just end up just talking very, very briefly about how we can go about practicing this spiritual path. I have mentioned already before that it is really very simple. And the spiritual path is sort of boils down to two things. On the one hand, you have the idea of morality or kindness in the world. Uh, on the other hand, you have the idea of meditation, which really comes about through mindfulness of breathing. Yeah, So kindness and mindfulness of breathing. Yeah, So it sounds very simple. Uh, so how can we make this work? Uh, how can we 
ensure that we are as kind as we possibly can? How can we change our mental attitudes and mental outlook so as to be more constructive in the world, in the way we deal with worldly things? And the most important thing on the Buddhist path, the thing that actually um, kind of makes everything else possible, is right view. Yeah, today, basically going to the suttas, going to the, is the Buddhist, uh, the Buddha's uh, gift to us of right view. This is what the Buddha gave to the world. The Buddha is said to be the eye of the world because the Buddha sees first and then he gives us access to those teachings, access to the same insight through the way he teaches. So if you want to speed up the spiritual path, if you want to make it as powerful as possible, the first factor on the Noble Eightfold Path is the most important one, right view. Because right view is what informs everything else on that path. If you want to be kind, right view is the most important thing because right view tells you the urgency of the practice. It tells you why it matters. It reminds you that your house is on fire. Because your house is on fire, now is the opportunity to do what is right. Every time we kind of mess up on the path, and of course we're going to mess up, and that's okay. Yeah, okay, well then we forgive ourselves and we carry on. But every time you do make a mistake, it's like you're taking a step backwards. And you can't really afford that, right? Because every time you take a step backwards, it's difficult enough as it is to go forwards. And so you establish that mindfulness at the back of your mind of the importance of this practice, so that you avoid taking those step backwards and you go forward as much as you possibly can. So come back to these teachings. Come back to these amazing suttas, discourses by the Buddha. Allow that to inform how you live your life. Listen also, of course, to contemporary teachers. But make sure that you are careful with choosing your teachers wisely. Yeah, they should, the way they teach should conform with the way that the suttas teach. If it doesn't conform with the way the Buddha taught, well then, you may have a problem so choose wisely. Yeah, don't don't be don't kind of be too uh, haphazard with how you choose your teachers, uh, and take ultimately the final teacher always to be the Buddha, and allow yourself gradually to be brainwashed by the Buddha. Huh? Yeah, I like the idea of brainwashing. Yeah, and uh, I remember when I first came to Bodhinyana Monastery, Ajahn Brahm said something to the effect, "Have you come here to be brainwashed?" And I said, no way, absolutely not, no chance. <laughs> and, I, and then I said, well, you come to the wrong place if you don't want to be brainwashed. <laughs> but of course, the point is that you get brainwashed anyway, right? Brainwashed is the nature, is, is the reality of being human beings. Brainwashing just means being influenced by the world. And so we can choose our brainwashing. You can choose the good brainwashing or the bad one. That is really the only choice we have. But brainwashed you are going to be regardless so make sure you get brainwashed by the good brainwashing. Yeah. The best brainwasher is the Buddha. Yeah, He kind of scrubs your brain nice and clean, and then you are on the right track. Yeah. The good brainwashing. Yeah. So uh, this is uh, what this is about. It actually, it really is, in a sense, about uh, brainwashing, in a sense. Uh, and then, uh, of course, you will quickly come to decide for yourself whether this is good for you or not. Uh, and as you do this, uh, if you find it to be good, well then, you know, you will just carry on with these teachings in a good way. Huh? And then this is how the practice then gradually unfolds, uh, how kindness on a daily basis becomes possible. And this is really the thing that you all, everyone who is on this path needs to focus on the most, uh, is to make that sila as firm as you possibly can. Uh, yeah, Because when the sila 
and the morality, when the kindness is practiced consistently all the time, uh, this is where you kind of the progress happens. Then, when you come to your meditation practice, uh, you start watching the breath. Uh, it's going to be easy. Uh, it's going to happen by itself. Uh, yeah. Why? Because the foundation is in place. Uh, and then the whole path unfolds, uh, as the Buddha says, without any need to will anything. Uh, the breath unfolds, the joy happens, uh, all of these beautiful results happen as a consequence. Uh, and then you're going to come back to the Buddha, you're going to cry your eyes out because you're so blissed out, uh, because the Buddha has given you these beautiful teachings. Uh, you're going to come here and you're going to bow down. Even if it's a statue of the Buddha, that's good enough, I'm going to bow down to the statue of the Buddha because the Buddha is so awesome. Uh, anyway, I'm going to stop there. Uh, we have, still have a few minutes left, but I wanted to... Uh, give us a chance just to kind of discuss these issues a little bit uh, uh, before we call it a day. So, uh, okay. Um, does anyone want to say anything about all of this? Are you scared now or are you... Uh, are you are you convinced about this, or do you think it's a bit dodgy? Or I, I, <laughs> so, uh, please, uh, yeah. This may not be related, but I think it is. Yeah. Um, there's samsara impermanent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this may not be related. Yeah. This may not be related, but um, is samsara impermanent? Is it impermanent? Uh, we make it impermanent, right? Uh, so whether samsara is impermanent or not depends on uh, on what you make of it. Uh, I think it's important to understand what samsara actually is, first of all, because we tend to think of samsara as like the world around us, like the universe, but actually samsara is your inner, inner world. That's really samsara. It's the kind of the process of getting born and then dying and kind of carrying on round and round. That is samsara. And that, of course, that moving on, always kind of going on from life to life, that is impermanent if we make an end of it. Yeah? So in that sense, it is potentially impermanent. Uh, but if we don't make an end of it, well then, you know, it's going to keep on going, going around and around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. You have somebody online? Uh, I would like to thank you very much for the reminder about... So I'm, I, I'm serious, you know, I practice and I, I know the truth, but it, I'm distracted by samsara, mm. <laughs> by what I like and what I don't like. And so I really appreciate the clarity. I mean, it, it's the starkness of the choices you make it either end in freedom for, you know, this mind and also the world being better or the other stuff, the mess that, we're, that, you know, is there. And I just appreciate that conclusion because I cannot be reminded too often. Yeah, yeah. Good. Yeah, no, thank you for that comment. That's, that's great. I, I've, so I agree with you so much. The idea of being reminded of the Dhamma is so important, you know, and one of the greatest benefits of being a teacher that you're reminded all the time because you're teaching these things, right? <laughs> so thank you for listening to me because I'm kind of the one who learns the most, yeah? That's kind of kind of remarkable. So now I, I fully agree with you and it's kind of interesting. I've been 
living with Ajahn Brahm. I put in Anna Monastery for almost 30 years. Yeah, I listened to Ajahn Brahm every week, and I've heard every story of Ajahn Brahm a hundred times. <laughs> and, uh, but I still enjoy it. That's kind of the weird thing. I go and listen to Ajahn Brahm, and when you are in the presence of someone like Ajahn Brahm, I mean, he has extre- extremely profound meditation. He's one of the kind of great meditation masters in the modern era, as far as I'm concerned. And sometimes when you listen to Ajahn Brahm, it's like you get drawn into this kind of, like this kind of truck with this kind of massive, you get drawn into the slipstream you know, of Ajahn Brahm. He kind of pulls, kind of goes first, and you kind of come behind it. And you cannot avoid feeling, you feel the profundity of the peace, of the kindness, of all the good qualities that are there. Yeah. And every time I go there, I'm reminded of these things. And this is kind of the idea of having a teacher. So, you know, we all kind of have our teacher, and we all, and ultimately goes back to the Buddha himself. And then we need to be reminded and say again and again and again. And this is one of the things I would recommend all of you to do. Always come back to these teachings. Make sure you have a source. You have some kind of watering hole. Yeah, you can go to and drink the water of the Dhamma to remind you, to keep you on the path and remember how important it is because that is ultimately what kind of keeps us going. The inspiration, yeah, the ability to sustain the practice depends on inspiration and kind of keeping that view straight within us because the distractions are so large and so enormous in society. So absolutely, so thank you very much for that uh, that comment. Uh, Yeah. Can we take somebody online? Please, uh, yeah. Just me. Go ahead. Hey, um, can you hear me? We can hear you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um, thank you very much for this talk today. It's been really um, very enlightening, and um, I I have a question about when you're traveling on your own spiritual path and um, you're dealing with the uh, morality uh, issues and um, the kindness that you'd like to carry, and it comes in conflict with your professional life or career. Um, Do you have any words of wisdom of how you navigate those situations? Um, I, you know, it... it, um I don't know obviously exactly the circumstances you are in, but uh, generally speaking, you have to make the most of the situation you are in. And in my experience, usually you can, uh, you know, you can do, uh, we can all do more, uh, whether it's within our professional life or family life or whatever it is, uh, there's always more that we can do to kind of live well. Uh, and uh, so I, I would say, you know, you do the best you possibly can, but if the professional life ultimately does stop you for whatever reason from living well, then you have to decide what you are going to prioritize, what really matters to you. Yeah, And uh, I would say that the spiritual path is so important. You should never really um, dilute the spiritual path or uh, you know, not practice that because of some worldly reason, like your professional life or whatever. There comes a point when you have to make some really tough choices. And you have to ask yourself that maybe you need to change your job, maybe even, if it comes to that. I mean, obviously you try not to, because if you have a nice job and you 
are thriving and you're enjoying it, then you try to make the most of uh, kind of combining the spiritual life and the job. But sometimes we have to make really tough choices in this life, and we have to kind of decide what really is important in life. When you die, you look back on your life. What is that going to matter to you? And whether you've had a successful career or not is going to be completely irrelevant on your deathbed. You're going to say, who cares? What is going to be relevant to you on your deathbed is how you treated other people. Is you're going to think back, oh yeah, I was kind to that one person. Wow, what a wonderful thing. And you're going to die with a smile on your face. So what, you want to die with a smile on your face or with a... <laughs> Or do you want to die in another way? Yeah. So this, so this is kind of the thing. The, from the perspective of death, everything starts to become clear what actually really matters. And this is one of the reasons why the Buddha always recommended death contemplation. Yeah. At the moment of death, what what is it that matters? If you were to die tomorrow, how would you want to live now? Yeah. If you knew that you're going to die tomorrow, and maybe you will die tomorrow. Maybe I will die tomorrow. Maybe I will die on my next breath. I didn't die. Okay, good. <laughs> so, yeah. So, anyway, please. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Great. I have another question from online. Okay. Uh, if I develop terminal cancer in my 20s, can I conclude that it is the ripening of bad karma from my past, of my current life, or from my past lives? Uh, you cannot really conclude that, no. It's very hard to know. The Buddha said there's many causes for why we get sick. Bad karma is one. Uh, there are other reasons, yeah, just the kind of the environment or whatever that causes illnesses in the body. So once you have been born as a human being, you can expect all kind of stuff yeah, that happens to human beings. So it is not necessarily bad karma. And in any case, it doesn't really matter what it is. Yeah? The problem is the same. The problem is that cancer happens to people, whether you are good or bad, or whether you are short or tall, or, or you know, whatever, left-handed or right-handed. I happen to be left-handed, so that's why I'm saying that. Well, whatever, whatever happens, yeah, the cancer happens to people. And uh, so it, the, the idea of illness, uh, it is inherent to human existence. And that is what is the important point. And that is what makes you kind of want to practice the spiritual life, because there's another problem that you cannot really get rid of. We have to be very careful with things like, you know, sometimes we uh, blame things on kamma, and one of the kind of the terrible thing that I sometimes see in the Buddhist communities uh, is that, uh, you know, we say, oh, it is their own fault that they are sick because they did some kamma in the past life. Uh, and that is completely a misunderstanding of the Buddha's teachings. That is the wrong way of thinking about kamma. All of us have plenty of bad kamma in there somewhere. Any one of us could get sick because of that bad kamma. It happens that some people for some people it ripens, for other people it doesn't. Uh, so we should never kind of become callous or hard-hearted uh, and not care about others just because they're having a difficult life or whatever. Uh, the idea of blaming things on karma and then becoming kind of uh, uncaring and not having compassion is the wrong way of thinking about things. Uh, everyone who is sick uh, is worthy of compassion. Uh, yeah, we can all, we're all going to be there one day, and then we also want to be worthy of that compassion of the people around us. Uh, that is the right way of thinking about this. Uh, 
So we need to be very careful how we use the ideas of kamavipaka so we don't kind of, uh, uh, kind of grab, misunderstand what the uh, intention behind these things actually are. Uh, so I would say don't worry too much about the reason. Uh, instead, learn the lessons. Uh, the lessons are what matter. And the lessons are always that uh, the spiritual path is what really is important in life. Uh, All right. Is that any? Uh, have any more questions online, or is that uh, is that it? No, we've got one more. You got one more. All right. Uh, anyone here wants to say anything before we go online? Huh? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Bante. I got a question about dependent arising. Dependent arising. All right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to do everything today. No, okay. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to last till tomorrow. Yeah. But uh, the the first factor the Buddha usually explains is a jiva, which is ignorance. Yeah. But the second noble truth tells us that tanha is actually the cause of mm. dukkha. Mm. So I'm just wondering, how come it's not... Which one is it? Is it yeah. or is it tanha? I wanna, what is actually the real cause? Yeah, okay. So, uh, all right. I, this is kind of getting a little bit on the side of the... Uh, what we have been talking about. I'm very happy to answer that, but maybe, is there one online, is that more relevant to what we're talking about, or is it this kind of also a bit? Just have a hand raised on Zoom. Just have a hand raised on Zoom, okay. Uh, Sorry. Yeah, no, that's fine. I, I, these are all important questions. So let, let, let's see what the Zoom question is about. Yeah. yeah. All right, we'll get our Zoom people on here. Go ahead, you're on. Oh, thank you. Uh, Bhante, I, I just wanted, perhaps you should answer that other question right away. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to personally thank you okay. uh, for your always inspiring talks. And uh, I've been, my partner and I have been listening for the last couple of years to your talks uh, from Australia and of course all of these hard places to get to. Uh, so we're just just uh, wonderfully appreciative and uh, of your generosity for traveling. And now we're in the same time zone. <laughs> and and uh, I I just wanted to personally thank you and tell you how much it means to us. So um, thank you. Wow, that's a very, very very good question. Like the kind of question I like. Yeah. <laughs> This is really great, yeah. No need to answer, no need to, okay, why, okay, good. No, thank you for, thank you for thanking me. That's very kind, really, it's very nice to hear that. And so that's, that's wonderful. Um, so let's go to Avijjantana. <laughs> so, uh, the, um, you know, one of the kind of interesting things about uh, dependent origination is uh, what does it really boil down to? Yeah, and this is kind of one of those very, I think, interesting and important questions because dependent origination it is um, given in so many different forms in the suttas you have sometimes you have the 12 factors of dependent origination sometimes 11 sometimes 10 sometimes 9 sometimes 8 7 6 how far down do can we actually go that's kind of the when is it no longer dependent origination at what point does it stop being dependent origination and that's a very i think important question to answer because to my mind, it is very often misunderstood in the world, and things that are not actually dependent on origination 
are called dependent origination? What is the kind of bare minimum of dependent origination here? And the answer to that question is to go to the uh, second noble truth. Yeah, because the second noble truth is really dependent origination is an expansion of the second noble truth. Yeah, so you find that in a sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya 3, is numerical discourses 3, is there, where it specifically says that dependent origination is an expansion of the second noble truth, and dependent liberation or dependent cessation is an expansion of the third noble truth, yeah, the ending of things. And of course, what is the second noble truth? The second noble truth, as you rightly said, is that craving is the source of suffering, right? Is the source of dukkha. But it's so that is the two main terms in that uh, second noble truth, craving on the one hand and suffering on the, on the other hand. But there's one more piece of information in the second noble truth. It is not just any craving. It is the pornobhavika craving. Pornobhavika means re-existence craving, the craving that has to do with re-existence. Yeah? So rebirth is also a part of the second noble truth. So the second noble truth contains three important elements, craving, rebirth, and suffering. So any expression of dependent origination, if it's going to be a full expression of dependent origination, has to have those three elements in it in one way or another. Yeah, Rebirth has to be there, craving in one way or another has to be there, and then the idea of suffering, which is the problem, has to be there. Yeah, So that is kind of the bare minimum. And then the Buddha starts to flesh that out. Yeah, he fleshes out. Well, what actually what happens? Why is it that craving leads to rebirth? And to explain that, I'm not going to get into that now. But then he adds the factors of upadana, which is clinging. He adds the factor of bhava, which is existence, to explain how craving leads to rebirth, and then rebirth goes to suffering. Yeah. But then he does another thing, and he explains the how craving itself arises. Yeah. And the reason why he does that is because craving cannot be stopped in its own right. Uh, craving is like a given in our lives. Uh, we can maybe reduce craving by saying, okay, I'm going to restrain myself, etc., etc., but you can only restrain yourself so far. It doesn't actually, restraining in itself does not end the craving. Uh, to be able to end craving, you have to analyze back further. Uh, and this is the idea of analyzing before craving, saying, well, the cause of craving is feeling. Cause of feeling is the six sense spaces. The cause of the six sense spaces is uh, uh, name and form, namarupa. Cause of namarupa is consciousness. Cause of consciousness is sankaras, volitional formations of. No, that's a terrible thing. Volitional activities, willed activities, choices, if you like. Yeah. And the cause of choices, the ultimate cause of the whole thing, is avidya or ignorance or delusion. Yeah. It stems from delusion, yeah. and delusion is why we crave. Yeah. And of course, the reason why the Buddha goes back to avidya in this way is because he knows how to deal with avidya. Avidya is ignorance or delusion. The way to overcome delusion is to practice the Noble Eightfold Path because the purpose of the practice is to see things clearly, right? And to understand the nature of reality, that is what eliminates ignorance. So the reason why he goes back before craving is to show the solution to the problem. The solution is found in seeing things according to reality. That's, that's why we have these two factors there. But the reason why craving is focused on, because craving is what drives the round of existence. 
is because we crave that we project ourselves into the future and we keep the samsaric cycle going. So craving does that, but to find the solution, you have to bring it back to avidya and to ignorance and to delusion in the world. So this is how, kind of this, as I understand it, these things fit together. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, great. Uh, small questions are good. Uh, yeah, let's go for small questions. <laughs> for a novice seeker, um, like I'm looking for print version of suttas, uh, which are not very intimidating, what would be a good place to start? Print, you want a printed version? Huh? Yeah, because when I'm uh-huh. on the computer, I tend to go to other places. Uh. <laughs> okay. I, what I would recommend to you is uh, there is a, a book called In the Buddha's Words, uh, which is an anthology of the suttas. Uh, it is done by Bhikkhubodhi. Bhikkhubodhi is one of the supreme translators of the suttas in the present day. He's one of the great jewels uh, right here in America. Yeah, It's kind of your American sutta jewel. <laughs> and he, he translates it beautifully. His English is just beautiful. Yeah, He translates like, it's just wonderful to read. Uh, but not just that, but he introduces them, explains what is going on. He has notes at the end to explain what's happening. And then he puts it into uh, kind of a nice little um, chapters. Yeah, So one chapter on this, one chapter on that. Uh, that is, is a very, very good place to start. Uh, so start with that. Uh, once you have done that, come back to me. Yeah, I will tell you what next to do next. Uh, yeah? So this is kind of your reason for coming back next time. <laughs> so there you are. At the back there. Okay, great. Uh, Um, I can't remember where the teachings, where it says this in the teachings, but there's like three kinds of tanha, right? There's craving for sensual desires, there's bhava-tanha, and then vibhava-tanha. So craving for existence and then craving for non-existence. What does craving for non-existence mean? It's like suicide. Hmm. You commit suicide because you had enough. You can't, you know, you're craving for non-existence. But uh, the thing is that because it is craving, it doesn't lead to non-existence. It leads to more existence. And that's kind of the problem. Yeah. So you crave for it. You have kind of, you know, you made. Yeah. So you. That's kind of the, the sad, sad thing about. And this is why we don't really recommend suicide in Buddhism because actually you come out the other end. The problem is still there, and you kind of carry on. Yeah. Right. I guess yeah. I'm kind of asking the question because I work with um, traumatized clients who okay. have who have suicidal ideation often. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like in the Buddhist understanding, even yeah. if it's suicide, death by suicide, the mind stream still continues, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So. Uh, and that this is an automatic process that keeps happening. It's just the craving is what is driving. From yeah. birth to birth. Uh-huh. Yeah, craving is like a projection into the future. Craving is always about the future, right? It's about some desired future state. And as long as you are projecting yourself into the future, actually that's what happens. You actually keep on going. So you have to stop that projection into the future. And that's why the ending of craving really is also the ending of, uh, of being reborn. Yeah. And it's like you just see that it's um, when you're seeing these projections, you're recognizing like this is just another thought. This is just another... Is that what it is? It's like you're just using awareness to recognize that these are just forms of delusion in the mind? Yeah, you can do that. I mean, it, yes, but I mean, in the end, what you have to do is practice the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, get into some deep meditation, and get some insight into the nature of uh, the mind. That's really what it is. It's really about understanding non-self. That's what it comes down to. 
So it is very, very profound. You can use those, uh, I guess, uh, you know, if someone is suicidal uh, and you can tell them, well, this is just, uh, you know, thoughts arising. I don't know if that works with them, but uh, (laughs) no, it doesn't really work. Yeah, you have to be, yeah, no, fair enough there. But, I, you know, on, on the other hand, it's important not to stigmatize people who commit suicide. I think that's also a very important thing here. And I think in Buddhism, uh, our approach, as far as I'm concerned, to the idea of suicide is that uh, suicide is not necessarily bad. Yeah? As often we say that suicide is terrible and it's bad. Yes, it may lead to rebirth, but most people get rebirth anyway. So that isn't necessarily a bad thing. Yeah? What is bad or good is how how we commit suicide. Everything in Buddhism is about intention and what motivates us. And if we are, we can be driven to commit suicide by very bad things. Yeah, We can do things out of really terrible intentions, anger or whatever, then of course it's going to be bad. But sometimes, let's say that someone is terminally ill and they have lots of suffering, they don't know what to deal, do with their life, and they think, there's no point to this anymore. I can't meditate, can't really do anything. So maybe I should end my life. And in that kind of situation, if they do that with a degree of clarity, and they do it out of a sense of compassion for themselves and maybe for other people because there isn't any purpose to this existence anymore, then I would say that it may not be bad karma. Yeah? It's very difficult to talk about individual situations, but I would say maybe in the, if your intention really is good, it cannot be bad karma because that's how karma is defined. I had a man who came to me many years ago, and he was uh, had some kind of terrible neuro- neurological uh, disease that kind of made him gradually more and more unable to function. Uh, and eventually, he was just lying in bed, couldn't do anything. Uh, and he had uh, decided beforehand. He asked me, you know, is it okay for me to kind of go to this this clinic in Switzerland called Dignitas Clinic, uh, where they will help you commit suicide, yeah, if you're on a deathbed. So he said, is that okay? Uh, and I said. Uh, <laughs> You can't, I can't really say it's okay, but uh, you know, I say if you do it in the right way, at the very least, it's not going to be bad karma. Yeah. And so I think in Buddhism, we can take some of the stigma out of suicide. I think that is really important. Uh, and then we can kind of get good support. Yeah? And we can kind of uh, um, do something pos- make something positive out of a very difficult situation. Uh, yeah. Thanks. Okay, everyone. So that's uh, it, I think. Any last uh, comments? Any sort of nothing? Everyone is okay? Yeah? Good. Yeah, everyone is satisfied. Everyone is too tired to ask any more questions. (laughs) So that's great. So, um, okay. Um, What do we do now? You want (laughs) to? Yeah?